evidence and answers. Premier Christian philosopher, theologian, and apologist, William Lane Craig recently wrote a book entitled The Quest of Historical Adam. Is Dr. Craig's conclusion consistent with the Genesis account and the scientific evidence? You're tuned to Evidence and Answers radio broadcast with your host, Pat Zucran. Pat is an author, teacher, and international speaker in the area of Christian apologetics, the defense of the Christian faith. Today we will be concluding an interview with Dr. Fazal Rana as he critiques Dr. Craig's new book entitled In the Quest of Historical Adam. To me, the model that he is presenting in the book is indeed a theistic evolutionary model. It thoroughly is theistic evolutionary. Yeah, you know, that's what kind of puzzled me because I have seen Craig debate atheists and show the flaws of Darwin's evolutionary theory and present some of the most powerful arguments for intelligent design. So that's what has me a little bit confused here. I'm anxious to talk to him about this uh, someday, but uh, that's where it had me a little confused here. Is he having the same uh, response or you see it differently. Yeah, I mean, there, it is a bit enigmatic. And in some respects, the ideas that Craig are, are presenting in this book are really, to some degree, kind of radical ideas. And so I admire his courage and his boldness for, to present you know, these ideas, to argue for them. But at the same time, it just really seems out of step with what I've seen in the past with regard to Bill Craig's work in Christian apologetics. So I share that, that confusion with you, Pat. But again, I've heard some people argue that what Craig is doing in the book is really presenting kind of a, a minimalistic apologetic with the idea that if indeed you just grant an evolutionary origin of humanity, that you can actually, in that framework, preserve a historical atom by viewing Genesis 1 through 11 as mytho-history, but you are now driven to the point where the only way that works is to have Adam being, again, a member of Homo heidelbergensis. And, you know, so to me, I find that very to be uncomfortable because I think when you look at the Genesis 1 through 11 account, I find it hard to believe that the author of that passage of Scripture, which I think was Moses, would have had any concept of Homo heidelbergensis or Neanderthals. Most certainly, he would be thinking of Adam and Eve as being like us, modern humans, anatomically and behaviorally modern humans. Now, those concepts would not have existed in Moses' times, but he would have most certainly thought of Adam and Eve as being exactly like us. And so to me, I think, you know, to appeal to Homo heidelbergensis as the source of Adam and Eve to me, is something I find to be very uncomfortable. Yes. So Craig views Neanderthals and Homo heidelbergensis as humans, and you would disagree with that. But why does Craig believe these hominins are humans? Yeah, well, again, what Craig does is, is argues that in order to locate Adam in evolutionary history, we must rely on science. And so the first thing that he does, which, you know, I think is the right maneuver, and that is to ask the question, well, what do you mean exactly by human? And so Craig argues that any creature that has anatomical similarities to us should at least be in consideration for being in the category of human. And of course, that would include hominins that are, you know, precede 
our appearance on Earth that we know of from the fossil record. But one of the problems I have is, what do you actually mean by anatomical similarity? Because you could actually argue that that similarity could extend to include all the members of primates, including the great apes, for example, right? And so, you know, that's a, a bit of ambiguity. And then Craig argues that there are four criteria for what constitutes being human. That would be the capacity for abstract thinking, uh, what's called planning depth, technological and economic innovativeness, and then last, the capacity for symbolism, the ability to represent the world in symbols and communicate through the use of symbols, like in language or music or in art. And so those are the, the four criteria that he has. And then when he, he argues that when you look at the archaeological record, it's very clear, according to Craig, that Neanderthals possessed all four of those qualities, just like we do as, as modern humans. And therefore, Neanderthals must also be human. They must also be image bearers. And if they are, then it means in evolutionary terms that the creatures that they descend from must also be image bearers, which would be Homo heidelbergensis. And so that's, in a, in a nutshell, how Craig is making that argument. Yes. Now, in your book, Who Was Adam?, you don't hold that Neanderthals or Homo heidelbergensis are human. So you take another view. Why do you view them as being not human or even pre, uh, our pre-human ancestors? Yeah, and one of the things that I think is really important, and this will be hopefully not too lengthy of an answer, is that there's some remarkable advances that are happening in evolutionary anthropology where people who historically working in that field would have argued that human beings only differ in degree, not kind, from other creatures that all we are is just essentially a little bit more of the same with respect to those ancestors that precede us in evolutionary terms. That view has dominated evolutionary anthropology for 150 years, that we're only different in degree, not kind. And lo and behold, today, there's a growing number of anthropologists who are deeply steeped in the evolutionary framework who are actually arguing that human beings actually different in kind, not different in degree that we are fundamentally different. And they argue that what makes us fundamentally different is our ability to represent the world with symbols, uh, to manipulate those symbols in a, a near infinite number of ways to create these alternate scenarios, to be able to tell stories in effect, both real stories and imaginary stories. And then they also argue that we have theory of mind, that we recognize that others have minds like ours, and that we work to try to link our minds together through complex social hierarchical structures. And so you might argue that these are scientific descriptors of what we might call the image of God. But the argument is, is that these set of qualities actually set us apart from all other creatures, from the great apes, and even from creatures like Neanderthals, where even though there are claims like that Neanderthals had language or that Neanderthals made art, for example, None of those claims actually withstand ongoing scientific investigation and characterization. For every one of those claims that's made, there are studies that re essentially refute those claims. And so it really does look like human beings uniquely are one of a kind, if you will, in a way that aligns with the image of God concept that we see in Scripture. Now, there's been work on, you know, comparing human biology to Neanderthal biology. And one of the things that 
makes modern humans distinctive is the anatomy of our face and our skull. Our skull is globular. It's globe-shaped, and our face is flat, and our chin is retracted. And what this does is it causes our parietal lobe to expand. And the parietal lobe is part of the brain that is critical for language and for mathematical treatment of for mathematics. Neanderthals, even though their brain was maybe even slightly larger than our brain, had an elongated skull and a face that and a chin that projected outward. And as a result of that, their parietal lobe is underdeveloped. And there are anthropologists who believe on that basis of that difference that Neanderthals did not have the capacity for language or for symbolic expression in a broad sense, that they were cognitively inferior to us. There are genetic studies. We have the full Neanderthal genome available to us. And by comparing the human genome and the Neanderthal genome, we actually identify differences in genes that play a role in neurological development or implicated in neuropsychiatric disorders, suggesting again, from a genetic standpoint, that we are different from Neanderthals in a way that is consistent with humans having you know, significant cognitive capacities beyond what Neanderthals possess, which I would argue allows for the image of God to be expressed in humans. On top of that, to me, what I find as being the kicker in terms of evidence for our exceptional nature is the trajectory of our technology. You know, when human beings appear on Earth, our technology is relatively primitive. Uh, and then in very short order, we developed the technology to be able to put human beings on the moon. Neanderthals were on Earth longer than we've been on Earth, and their technology was static. It, never, it didn't show any kind of progression whatsoever. And there are anthropologists who have pointed out there's got to be something that accounts for that difference. And they argue that that something is our ability for symbolism and our ability to produce open-ended languages and what means of communication based on symbolism, that because we have that, our technology takes this exponential growth. Because Neanderthals lack that, their technology remains static. And so to me, I think there's some very good scientific reasons to see human beings as distinct from Neanderthals, and as a consequence, also Homo heidelbergensis. And in a way that is consistent with Scripture teaches, that we are uniquely made in God's image, that we stand apart from all other creatures, that, that we are truly the crown of creation. Right. So to get this evolutionary timeline correct, evolutionists are saying Heidelbergensis precedes Neanderthals. Is that correct? That's right. So Heidelbergensis presumably existed in an evolutionary timescale between 750 and about a thousand and about a million years ago. And the thought is that the branches that gave rise to Neanderthals and modern humans diverged from each other, oh, in the neighborhood of approximately 500,000 to 600,000 years ago, where there are now these two separate evolutionary branches. And so, you know, Neanderthals technically are not our evolutionary ancestor, but really represent a, a side branch, an evolutionary side branch you know, in the evolutionary scheme. Yeah, and I think that's a good point you make because, you know, when we're watching the Discovery Channel or reading our biology textbooks, usually in the schools, they say that these are our cousins, you know, but what you're just said here is that there is a huge difference between 
Heidelbergensis and the Neanderthals. And so, you know, they wouldn't be on the ancestral line. They're actually on separate, what would we say, evolutionary branches. Is that what you're saying? Exactly right, yes. Yeah, so if Neanderthal is not human, then Craig's argument really stands on shaky ground if he points to the predecessor, Heidelbergensis, isn't it? Yes, I think so. And from my perspective, and again, I don't hold to any kind of evolutionary view for human origins, and I think Genesis 1 through 11 are historical, just to be clear. But one of the things that, that somewhat puzzles me is that Bill Craig could have actually held to the almost an identical model where he would just say that Adam came from Homo sapiens sapiens, from anatomically and behaviorally modern humans. And he still could argue for an evolutionary origin of humanity. He could still argue that Genesis 1 is mytho-history. And I think his case would be, you know, stronger. And so to make the argument that, again, Adam came from Homo heidelbergensis is, to me, very, just very hard to embrace in any way, shape, or form. Yeah, and I think what makes the argument a little more tenuous is that you say that there is considerable debate as to whether, you know, Homo heidelbergensis actually existed. You know, why is this debated? Yeah, well, as it turns out, evolutionary anthropologists really in recent years have begun to question Homo heidelbergensis as being a, a bona fide species. That, because what has happened in the past is that when these hominins were found in that time window between, let's say, 500,000 years ago and, and you know, a million years ago, they were just thrown into this category that was called Homo heidelbergensis. And so there are anthropologists who argue that heidelbergensis actually doesn't exist and that the specimens that are found in Africa really should be classified as a new hominin species called Homo bodoensis uh, that would have been exclusively in the human branch of the evolutionary tree, that the specimens that are found in Europe that are attributed to Homo heidelbergensis really should be understood as early appearing Neanderthals. And the Heidelbergensis specimens that are in Asia are essentially uncategorized. And so the point here is that it very well may be that Homo Heidelbergensis never existed. Now, Craig refers to Heidelbergensis as being somewhat like a placeholder for about when Adam would have lived. But in his analysis for what, which hominin could be rightly classified as being human, he excludes Homo erectus. So Homo erectus appears oh, about 1.8 million years ago in the fossil record and disappears approximately 500,000 years ago, thereabout. The disappearance of Homo erectus is on a different time scale depending on what part of the world that you're in. But Craig rules out Homo erectus as being in the category of human, that Homo heidelbergensis in his mind is where the cutoff takes place. The problem is, is that if Homo heidelbergensis doesn't exist, there is no known species in that time regime that would serve as the source for Adam and Eve, other than potentially a late-appearing Homo erectus, but Craig has ruled that possibility out. So this is another place where I think his model is, is really tenuous uh, from a scientific perspective, is that Heidelbergensis may not have actually lived. Yes, so to put it all together now, for you, who was Adam and what is his relationship with Neanderthal man, Homo Heidelberg 
Arachnidensis, Homo erectus, and, and the other hominids? Yeah, well, you know, I would see, again, Adam as being a modern human, the very first modern human that was, again, created by God through his direct intervention. I reject the idea of human evolution as being the means to account for our origins as human beings. And then I would see these creatures like Homo heidelbergensis and Homo erectus and Neanderthals as being these fascinating, remarkable creatures that existed and then disappeared. They went extinct. That they were, These were creatures that were created by God that had some measure of intelligence and emotional capacity, uh, but that they lacked the image of God. They were not image bearers. They were creatures. I would think of them in the same vein that I would think of the great apes, you know, chimpanzees, orangutans, and gorillas. Fascinating creatures, remarkable creatures, beautiful creatures that, again, have obviously some intelligence and emotional capacity, but nobody's going to confuse a chimpanzee and a modern human, right? That there's something fundamentally different about us, and it connects to our cognitive capacity, uh, which I think, again, is a, provides that framework by which the image of God is able to be expressed. So that's how I would think of the hominins. Again, real creatures that existed that are part of the history of life on Earth, but they are not our evolutionary ancestors, and they're not predecessors to us. A personal question that I had, I'm not sure you can answer it, but why is it that these hominids went extinct while the apes and chimpanzees kind of survived? Why do you think they went extinct? That's a question, actually, that scientists are wrestling with right now, is how do we explain the extinction of Neanderthals? There's a number of different ideas that are in play. One of them is that that when humans began to migrate into the parts of the world where Neanderthals lived, that we were so cognitively superior that we just simply outcompeted them. That would probably be my explanation for it. And Neanderthals also most likely lived in relatively small groups that were insular, and that tends to promote extinction more so than anything else. And so those are some ideas, but nobody really knows why they went extinct. I think it is important to note that most of the great apes are on the endangered species list, that they are on the cusp of of going extinct as well. And so they outlasted uh, Neanderthals, but they may very well follow the same fate as Neanderthals. Yeah, well, you know, I kind of wish they were still around. That would uh, answer our question, I think, (laughs) whether they were our ancestors or not. You know, Fuzz, when it comes to this whole issue, the debate of the origin of man issue, you know, as Christians, you know, how should we approach this? You know, some dismiss the science or scripture. They say, this is what the Bible says, period, and kind of dismiss the science, while some go the other way and favor the science over the scripture. How should we approach this issue? You know, I think we don't want to neglect either scripture or science, but as somebody who's a Christian who views the Bible as being inerrant and trustworthy and really the foundational to understanding our faith as Christians— you know, I think we have to give deference to what Scripture teaches, and I think it's very clear that Scripture does indeed teach that Adam and Eve were real historical individuals, and that this idea is critical. It's, it's the foundation, you know, for Christian ethics, that human beings were created, that we're created in God's image. This is an idea that's foundational to the gospel. It's an idea that's foundational to other important ideas theologically, like 
the theology of the human family, the theology of human sexuality. And so if Scripture teaches this, then, then that's where we have to stand. My conviction is that if we properly understand Scripture and we properly understand the record of nature, that we're always going to see congruence and harmony between the two. And if there are places where there's conflict, it means that we really need to go back and re-examine you know, not only our biblical interpretation, but our scientific interpretation. But in my view, the scholars who have carefully examined the biblical view of human origins present a very compelling case that that passage of Scripture is historical and, you know, that Adam and Eve really were real individuals that were the first of humanity. That being the case, then the question is, how do we integrate the scientific data with that insight? And there are ways to do it, most certainly. You know, and and I very much appreciate the fact that Bill Craig is trying to produce an integrative model, because there's a lot of Christians who just argue, you know, that the science is separate from Scripture. Scripture teaches this, science teaches this, and we shouldn't try to, to intermingle the two. We shouldn't try to look at how they interact. They're just simply two different complementary ways of thinking about our origins. And so I I think if we're going to really be impactful in engaging our culture, particularly with the gospel, we've got to be able to explain to people how the biblical account, you know, squares with the scientific record. And, you know, in my book, Who is Adam? I propose a model where I try to do that very thing. I very much appreciate that Bill Craig is trying to do that as well. I just don't agree with what Bill Craig's conclusions are, and I think some of his analysis is indeed problematic, but I do appreciate very much what he's trying to do in the book, and I think that in and of itself is very important. I wish more Christians would try to take that integrative approach, not dismissing science, not dismissing Scripture, but looking at creating a model that treats the information from Scripture and the information from science seriously, uh, but yet, again, produces a model that is, is biblically faithful. Yes, you've been listening to our interview with Dr. Fuzz Rana, and he is Vice President of Research and Apologetics of a great organization called Reasons to Believe, and I believe they do a great job in integrating science and the scripture together. And we've been critiquing a great book by Dr. William Lane Craig on In the Quest for the Historical Adam, critiquing that book that I'm sure uh, is going to generate a lot of discussion. So, Fuzz, any last words uh, regarding Bill Craig and his work here in the quest for the historical Adam? Yeah, you know, again, I appreciate the fact that a scholar like Bill Craig is willing to wrestle with this very challenging issue. It's a difficult issue to be certain. Having worked on the question of human origins myself for nearly (laughs) a quarter of a century, it's a challenging area to be certain. And There are times where you wind up walking away with more questions and answers and insights. But if we don't wrestle with this issue, I think we ultimately are going to be ineffective in our evangelistic efforts. And my hope is that really as more scholars step forward with ideas about how the science and scripture square together, that it really creates a collaborative environment where we are, though we disagree with one another, we are working in a collaborative spirit to try to get to the point where we've got robust options available to us for how uh, we can make sense of a, of a historical atom, you know, in this age of, of science and in an age of Darwin. 
You've been listening to our interview with Dr. Fazale Rana of Reasons to Believe. And I recommend both books. Bill Craig, a fine, outstanding defender of the Christian faith, fine philosopher and theologian. And I recommend you read his book, In the Quest for the Historical Adam. And I also recommend you read Fuzz Rana's book, uh, Who Was Adam? And get two different perspectives here. And I think those would be two great books to read one with the other. So, Fuzz, thanks for being with us here once again on Evidence and Answers. My pleasure, Pat. Our time today has come to a close. Thank you for joining us here on Evidence and Answers radio broadcast. We hope you enjoyed today's show. We have a wide variety of different topics that will make for an incredible conference series. If you are interested in having Pat speak at your church, Bible study, or even schedule an apologetics conference at your church or location, give him a call in Hawaii. That number is 483-0586. Or you may contact him through the Evidence and Answers website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Be sure to use our search engine for available resources. We have everything from atheism to Zen Buddhism, including articles and additional audio for you to listen to or download. So be sure to share our website with those around you. To keep quality broadcasts like Pat's on the air, we rely on generous financial support from you, our listeners. For the opportunity to partner with us, once again, head on over to our website. That's evidenceandanswers.org. Evidence and Answers would like to thank one of our sponsors, the Honolulu Christian Church. If you don't have a home church and are looking for a great place to connect and grow in Christ, check out the Honolulu Christian Church. For service times, log on at honoluluchristian.org. That's honoluluchristian.org. Join us again next time on the air or online as we provide compelling reasons for faith in Christ. That's Evidence and Answers with Pat Zucharak.